feel like a little kid. All the things. I remember Dennis the Menace. Any of you? Probably if you're as old as me, then you remember Dennis the Menace. I remember one scene where he was just emptying his pockets. I forget what it was he was looking for, but it was incredible. It's almost like Mary Poppins' <laughs> carpet bag pulling out the trees and everything. God is good. And all the time, very good. It's good to repeat these truths. It's good to remind ourselves that our God is good, always. Because sometimes, oftentimes, the circumstances seem to be otherwise. Oftentimes, circumstances seem to be out of control, and sometimes we're asking, God, where are you in all of this mess? Things just don't make sense. But God is sovereign, and He is working everything out for the best of His people, out for the best of this world. God does have plans for this world to restore this world to the perfection with which He created it to reestablish his kingdom here, to send his son to reign as king over this earth. This past year, the political rancor that we've seen, the ugliness, the hatred, the, the violence, and that's just on Facebook. The protest, and it depending on which side of the fence you're on in that whole political argument, you may be fearful of the current administration and where it might be taking our nation, or you might be a little bit scared of what's happening with all of the protests and the uprising on the left and the violence that that seems to be bringing to our nation. You might be asking God, how could you? Or may even question, how could God possibly be in what has been taking place in our society? I've actually seen that question come from people that I know are good, God-fearing people. Saying that God cannot possibly be in what's going on. I want to take a look at two men in scriptures who questioned God's involvement in society and in the nation that they were in at that time. They asked two questions. They start out saying, God, where are you? And when God blesses them with an answer and speaks to them, their next question is, God, how could you? It just doesn't make sense. We see that in our own lives quite often. The tragedies that we've seen in our own community very recently. The loss of young life. You say, God, where were you? And he says, I'm where I always have been. I'm on the throne. I'm right there with you. And the next question is, God, how could you? How could you allow this to happen? It just doesn't make sense. 
First, I want to take a look at Psalm 73. It's written by a man by the name of Asaph. He was a musician in David's court. He was a worship leader under King David. And while we often think of the Psalms as being written by David, many of them were written by other people in the Scriptures, although David was one of the most prolific. And Asaph was one of the worship leaders that served in the tabernacle when David brought the Ark of the Covenant back in to the land of Israel after it had been captured, had been lost by King Saul to, Saul to the uh, Philistines. And Asaph writes this psalm basically pouring out his heart to God. Psalm 73 starts out with a truism, with a spiritual truth, with something that he has been taught all of his life, something that he has believed, and something that I think that he's saying here to remind himself. Because he's not entirely sure that he believes it at this point. He says, surely God is good to Israel. Surely God is good to those who are pure in heart. And he repeats this to try to convince himself, to remind himself of the goodness of his God. And then he starts looking around and what he sees, what meets his eyes, just does not fit with what he has believed and what he has been taught and what he has been told through the years. He says, as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. The people in control of our society don't appear to be godly people. It's not showing in their lives, it's not showing in their words. People holding up signs that say, this is a hate-free zone all the time, burning buildings, breaking windows, and destroying cars in the name of peace. Political leaders that say they have our best interest at heart while enriching themselves and making themselves wealthy and living lives and speaking words that are anything but godly. Both sides of the spectrum. Asaph goes on to say, they don't seem to have any struggles. They don't seem to be having any problems in their lives. They are wealthy. They are comfortable. They travel the world. They're out kiteboarding in the Caribbean while we suffer, while we struggle, and we, while we fail, uh, fe- face financial failure. They're free from the common human burdens. They're not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace, and they clothe themselves with violence. And from their callous hearts comes iniquity, and their evil imaginations have no limits. And he goes on and on and complains about how these wicked 
people, how these ungodly people speak the words of prosperity and peace to us, but live lives that seem to ignore where we are. Verse 9, it says, their mouths lay claim to heaven. There almost seems to be at least a gloss of religiosity about them. They call themselves Christians. They claim to have a, a belief in God. And their tongues take possession of the earth. Going on to verse 13, jumping ahead a little bit. Asaph goes to the point of saying, maybe I'm wasting my time trying to be godly. Maybe I'm wasting my time trying to, be, to live a good life, to live a holy life. Because it really doesn't seem to work in this society. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence, and all day long I have been afflicted. And every morning brings new punishments. Honestly, have you ever felt like that? It's a waste of time in this society. You just can't get ahead by being a good man. But he goes back and reminds himself. He pulls in the reins on his anger, his frustration. And he goes back to the beginning. He says, God, surely God is good. All the time. Surely God has not forgotten the godly. It says in verse 15, if I had spoken out like this, if I had said out loud everything that was going through my mind and all of my frustration and all of my bitterness. It says, I would have betrayed your children. This is a man, this is a pastor, this is a, a worship leader speaking to the people here. It says, if I had said this out loud in the midst of our worship and in public, I would have betrayed you and I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all of this, NIV says it troubled me deeply. I don't think that's quite strong enough. The, uh, another translation I read said, I find it oppressive. It weighs me down. It's depressing. It just fogs my head up. And I can't think clearly. Until, until I entered the sanctuary of God. And then I understood their final destiny. We need to remind ourselves. Repetition of the biblical truths, repetition of things that we may not necessarily believe entirely at the moment, that we know are true, but we're having a hard time holding on to and wrapping our fingers around. We need to remind ourselves, repetition is good. I know in our evangelical background growing up, we 
Quite often we see the high church, the repetition, the liturgy, where people just seem to be reading prayers off the page. And yes, that can be empty. Yes, that can be meaningless. Yes, that can be mindless babble. But there is also validity in repeating things that we're having a hard time convincing ourselves of. Because it is God's truth. And there is a biblical biblical basis for that. You look through the Psalms, and quite often the Psalms are very liturgical, very repetitious. We're very often meant to be like the old... uh, why don't you call it responsive readings that we used to use out of the, the hymn book? Remember the brown hymn book? Those of you that have been around here for a while? They had the responsive readings in the back where the worship leader would read a, a verse and then we'd read a little bit and then they'd read a little bit and then we'd read a little bit. And it's, it's just a repetition. It's a reading of printed words, but it helps remind us of what is true. What is true of our God? And sometimes we have to work hard to convince ourselves that God is in control because He truly is. What does it mean to enter the sanctuary of God? Asaph, this was a worship leader. This was a man who spent his entire adult life within the sanctuary, within the worship of the tabernacle. They didn't have the temple quite yet at that time. This was in the days of David. The temple would come a generation later. It says, when I entered the sanctuary of God. We call this the sanctuary. Within our church. And that's another word. And I don't want to spend a whole lot of time going off on that. The church is actually the, what's sitting in the chairs right here. The church is not necessarily the building. And it is possible to come within this building. It's possible to come within this room and even read the words and sing the songs mindlessly and to walk out of here unchanged. So what does it mean to enter the sanctuary of God. Because Asaph says, when I entered the sanctuary of God, when I walked into God's presence, I understood. I saw God's perspective. And I no longer was drowning in my own perspective, in my own head within my own thoughts. One of the things that is most likely to cause us trouble in our own lives, that's most likely to destroy us, is what's going on right in here. Regardless of what's going on around us and the reality of what's in our world, what's going on in here has far more impact than what's happening out here. We need to gain God's perspective on the world. Be able to step back and see His picture 
instead of the picture that we've created for ourselves of what we think is going on. Psalm 63 is by far one of my favorite psalms. David starts out, and I'm going to, have, I'm going to quote some of this, I'm going to have to do it. Do you ever have trouble with a fingerprint function on your phone? It drives me nuts. Usually when I'm in a hurry. I memorized this psalm in the King James Version. And that's what sticks with me, as many different Bibles as I've used over the years. And, it, and I did that simply because that's what I had available on a loop tape of the Psalms. It says, Oh God, you are my God. Early will I seek thee. Now most of the modern translations use the word earnestly there, or with passion. It says, Oh God, you are my God, early will I seek thee, my soul thirsts for thee, and my flesh longs for thee in a dry and thirsty land. To see thy power and thy glory, as I have seen thee in the sanctuary. David was running. He was on the run. He was in the wilderness, in the edge of the desert, running from Saul. He said, I feel like I'm dying. I'm hungry. I'm thirsty. But even more than what's happening to my body, God, I long and I thirst for you. To see your power and your glory like I saw you at one time in the sanctuary. Because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise you, and thus I will bless you while I live, and I will lift up my hands in your name. My soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness, as with the richest of foods. David wasn't worried about cholesterol. My mouth shall praise you with joyful lips, and when I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches. And because you have been my help, therefore in the shadow of your wings I will rejoice. My soul followeth hard after thee. This is entering the sanctuary. To long. This is what happened when I go off page. <laughs> to long to see the face of God. To hunger. And thirst.
for that vision of his glory. You can go in. You can repeat the words. You can sing the songs. You can listen to the sermons and walk out unchanged. And never enter the presence of God. It requires that thirst for God. When we don't understand why God's doing something, it's usually because we don't see through His eyes. We're looking through our own eyes, and we're so lost in this up here. that God's perspective is just robbed, is stolen from our vision. Asaph goes on to say, in verse 21 and 22, When my heart was grieved, my spirit embittered. I was senseless. I was ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. We lose that vision of God's glory. Bitterness imprisons us. Learning to let go of all of that and learning to forgive. Not to let someone else off the hook, but to let yourself off the hook. To allow yourself to see through God's eyes once again. That brings peace. And that brings freedom. We need to develop God's perspective on the situation. Much of the pain in our lives come from an improper perspective on life and relationships. We've learned to protect ourselves at all costs. We get scared. We shut the world out. We get afraid that the world's going to come in and rob us of what little we have. Rob us of our safety. Rob us of our peace. Rob us of our future. Rob us of our children's future. But God's perspective is much different. He sees things from a much larger perspective. And getting God's perspective brings with it a peace that passes understanding. Isaiah chapter 26, verse 3 says, You will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast, those, again, back to the King James Version. Those whose minds are stayed on thee. Whose, those who have fixed their eyes on God's perspective. Who have learned that sometimes I have to just remind myself and repeat things that I don't necessarily believe yet. 
to remind myself God is good all the time. And all the time. God is good, and we have a good, wise, and all-powerful God. If any of those three were missing, then we have a horrendous God that we serve. If God's not good, then he's evil. And we can expect nothing but chaos in this world. God's all-powerful, which is good and fine, but if he's all-powerful but not good, then he's not going to take care of us. If he's not loving, he doesn't care about us. God's good and loving, but not all-powerful. I know, I'm watching. I'm taking care of which fingers I hold up here. I figured somebody out there was just waiting for me to forget. If God's good and loving, but not all-powerful, then there's nothing he can do to save us. God is omnipotent in all power. God is loving and God is good. Sometimes we need to remind ourselves of that. God will bring justice. God reminds Asaph of this verse back in verse 17. He says, until I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. God reminded Asaph. Perhaps Asaph simply needed to remind himself. He says, I am always with you. I hold you. You hold me by my right hand. This took me back, reading this verse, took me back to when Brendan was three years old. We lived across the street from the church, and it was a horrendous street. It scared the bejeebers out of me. Because people flew, we were on top of a blind hill, and people flew by there at 60 miles an hour all the time. And we weren't there more than a month before we lost our dog. Because our dog loved people and saw somebody over at the church and went to say hi. And I remember walking Brendan across that hill. We had to walk down a hill, across the street, and then up to the church again. And there was times that he'd be walking along there, and it was a little unsteady, and he was unsteady, and he'd stumble and fall. But as long as I had him by the hand, he didn't hit the ground. As long as I had him by the hand, he was safe from that horrendous blind traffic. I'm always with you. You hold me by the right hand. You guide me, will take me into glory. Whom do I have in heaven but you? And I desire nothing on earth. My strength may fail, but God is the strength of my heart. <coughs> Asaph brought himself back around in the presence of God. And just a real quick look. One other man, Habakkuk. Just a little bit further back, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, and Nahum, Habakkuk. I've got to do that every time I go to the Minor Prophets. 
in the Old Testament to be able to find it. I cheated and looked it up and marked it. Habakkuk is suffering the same problem as Asaph. He says, there's nothing but violence and injustice as I look around. How long, Lord, must I call for help, but you don't listen? Cry out to you, violence, but you do not save. Why do you make me look at injustice, and why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me, and there is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed, and justice never prevails. The wicked in them... The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. Sound like anything familiar? Habakkuk is crying out, How long, O God, will you delay? God honors him with a direct answer. He says, I have plans. I'm bringing in the Babylonians. That's about verse 5 there, 5 and 6. I'm going to bring in the Babylonians to punish all of the wickedness in the land. Habakkuk just can't believe that he's going to do something like this. He says, how can you? They're worse than we are. You look at verses 12 and 13. The Babylonians were known for their cruelty. They came in and conquered people. And I won't go into the details. And Habakkuk says, Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, you will never die. You've appointed them to, you, Lord, have appointed them to execute judgment. But your eyes are too pure to look on evil, and you cannot tolerate wrongdoing. And how can you tolerate the treacherousness of these people? How can you say you're using these wicked, cruel conquerors for good? For your glory. God, where are you? God answers. God, how could you? It doesn't make sense. On into chapter 2, God says, I know what I'm doing. Habakkuk's pretty brash and bold. The very first verse in chapter 2, he says, I will stand my watch and I will station myself on the ramparts. I'll look and see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give to the complaint. He says, I'm going to stand here, God, until you answer me. And that's a whole other sermon for another day. And the Lord did reply. He says, write down the revelation and make it plain on the tablets so that a herald may run with it, so that you can spread the word to the people. It says, the enemy's puffed up, his desires are not upright, but the righteous person will live by his faithfulness. He goes on to say, you're right, the Babylonians are wicked, they're evil, they're cruel, and they will be punished. Righteousness will prevail. Often we don't understand what God is up to. What events He's setting up. How could God possibly be in what's going on? How could God possibly put this administration in office? 
How could God possibly be in the midst of the riots and the violence? But God is setting things up for the ultimate good. It looks hard and it looks harsh at the time. Habakkuk gets a peek at God's perspective. And we'll just hurry on to the end of the the book. I'll let you read the whole thing on your own. It's very short. It's only about five and a half pages in my Bible here. Once Habakkuk gets a peek at God's perspective on what's going on and God's promise to bring about righteousness in the end. He expresses a faith in God and he says, Lord, I have heard of your fame and I stand in awe of your deeds. Repeat them in our day, in our time, and make them known and in wrath. Remember mercy. God, you must bring your judgment. I understand that now. Don't forget mercy. And at the end of the book, starting in verse 16, he says, I heard, my heart pounded, my lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. I was terrified. Yet I wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. Though the fig tree does not bud, though there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails, the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The Sovereign Lord is my strength, and He makes my feet like the feet of a deer and enables me to tread on the heights. In spite of all appearances, God is in control. God knows what He's doing. God is all wise. He knows what needs to happen. He's all powerful. He can make it happen. And God is good and loving. And what's going to come out in the end will be for the best of our nation, for the best of his people, and for our blessing. For a Christian living in a wicked world, this all boils down to trust. Tucked back in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, we find the admonition, the righteous will live by faith. We believe that God will keep His promises. He always has in the past. We trust that He is in control of history. Sometimes we have to remind ourselves. Sometimes we have to pull ourselves up short. Say, stop thinking like that. come out of the fog of our own misery and remind ourselves that our God is good and we can trust Him. Do we tend to believe or disbelieve what the Scriptures say just because our eyes don't see it? 
because it doesn't fit our experience? Do we measure the Scriptures by what we have seen in our own lives and what we see in the world and our own wisdom and our own evaluation of what's going on? Or do we trust our lives to a God who is good and wise and all-powerful? Both Asaph and Habakkuk went from worrying to worship, from terror to trust, from fear to faith. Can we say, as Habakkuk did, though I lose my job, though my pantry is empty, though the creditors won't leave me alone. My friends turn their backs on me. Still, I will rejoice in God my strength. Isaiah chapter 7 verse 9, he says, If you don't stand firm on your faith, you won't be able to stand at all. Asaph and Habakkuk looked for answers, and God reminded them, God gave them answers. <clears throat> God reminded them, in spite of all appearances, since God is in control of the universe, we can rest in His plan. We may not like His plan. We may not be comfortable with His plan. But every event, even the most seemingly meaningless, is a step towards the fulfillment of God's ultimate purpose the cleansing of this earth, and the reestablishing of his rule here in all perfection when Christ returns. He holds the future, and no matter what lies ahead, he's going to work everything out for good. And not just for his good, but for our good. Talk to God today about what's going on. Talk to him about what is fogging this up here for you? What's causing you anxiety, anger, fear, frustration? Like Habakkuk, don't be afraid to ask God the hard questions. Say, God, I'm going to stand here until you tell me. He's faithful. He'll speak. It doesn't mean we'll always understand. We won't always like the answers. But it does mean we can come away from our tough talks with God with a greater understanding and a greater faith in our God. The God that we can trust no matter what. God is good. And all the time? Thank you, Lord. We thank you for being faithful. We thank you for being good. Help us to trust you. Even when it looks like all is out of control. even when it looks like this world is going to hell in the proverbial handbasket.
Help us to trust you. And to be faithful. And to shine your light in a dark world. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.